Theodore Waddell in his parable entitled The Life-Saving Station describes this life-saving station located off a coast where there were many treacherous waters and many shipwrecks were common. The life-saving station itself was nothing more than a run-down shack, but it contained some very dedicated people, people who were willing to watch 24 hours a day, day and night, looking out at sea for those who were shipwrecked and might need assistance. And many were rescued. And many of those rescued became volunteers. They began to serve in the life-saving station in gratitude and thanks for being saved themselves. And after a time, the station became rather famous. There were articles in the paper, kind of began to be a place of reputation. Soon others who admired the good deeds that were being done through this life-saving station decided to also become volunteers, to join up, to get in on what was happening there. And when some of these people came, they looked and they thought to themselves, "Ah, it's just not right here. This place is run down. It's nothing more than a shack. It's it's dilapidated. Let's, let's fix it up. Let's make it nicer. And so the crude accommodations were soon spruced up. They built a brand new big facility. They purchased new boats and new docks. Some who wanted to give gave large amounts of money because after all, if you're going to save somebody, you might as well do it in style. Soon, the life-saving station became a popular meeting place. Many social activities were planned there. And those in charge had just decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely, and it was a very pleasurable place to be. They even took one of the old life-saving boats and put it as kind of a centerpiece in one of the main meeting rooms. Many started to come, though, only for the social activities. They were interested in what was going on there socially, not in saving people. They were unwilling to stay up all night, let alone go out in terrible storms and risk their life to save those shipwrecked at sea. So they hired other people to do that trained professionals with graduate degrees in saving people. And one dark, stormy night, a large ship was shipwrecked off the coast, and many people were brought in by the boatloads. They were dirty, tired, traumatized, half-drowned, shivering masses And they came in from distant shores from when they had been rescued from the tempest. And the station was in chaos. It was in chaos because all the people who were meeting there didn't know how to save anyone. They began to complain to the hired workers because they felt uncomfortable with all these dirty, wet, sick outsiders coming in and messing up their station. So they hired contractors to build some crude outbuildings where those who are rescued could be taken to and cleaned up and made presentable to come into their nice life-saving station. And eventually a rift developed between a few committed people who were at the life-saving station, those who had been there for a long time, those who are committed to risking their life to save people, and the people who basically didn't want to be involved in the work of rescuing themselves, but just wanted to pay others. And so there was a split. 
And just down the coastline a little bit, those few people who did not have much resources built themselves a crude life-saving station. Over time, that too fell to the same fate as the first. And now if you visit that coast, there are many beautiful life-saving stations. But sadly, most people who are shipwrecked at sea, drown. In our text today, Paul is addressing public worship, specifically prayer for the lost, those shipwrecked at sea. If you have your Bibles, look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. In this section, we are dealing with prayer for the lost. And although we're only going to look at the first two verses, don't forget that everything we look at and everything we talk about is going to be focused around prayer for the lost. Paul says, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God... And one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed as a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, therefore, I want men in every place to pray. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and without dissension. Paul here is addressing public worship. We know this because in this section, which starts in chapter 2, verse 1, and ends at the end of chapter 3, he gives us the purpose statement of this section in chapter 3, verse 15. If you look there, he says, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. He is now telling us how we are to conduct ourselves as we meet together as believers here to worship. Specifically, Paul is addressing how men are to pray in public worship services for the lost. We know that from verse 4, which in the context says of God, that he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That is why this prayer is being um, or being addressed here is so that we would pray to this end. And of course, we can't get all the way down, but just so you know. We also know that he is speaking directly to the men of the church, those who lead in public worship, telling them to make sure they don't neglect This praying, we know that from verse 8, therefore I want men in every place. He wants women, according to verse 11, to remain quiet, but the men are to, as of first and priority, be prayers for the souls of men. And so today, as we look at the text, we are going to look at three primary points. One, four ways you can pray. Two, three kinds of people you can pray for. And three, four reasons to pray. Look at what the text says. He says, first of all, then. This phrase might also be translated chiefly or of first importance. It means first among other things in time or sequence. In other words, whatever he's going to tell us here, he wants us to know that as a church, especially us leaders that this is something that should not be neglected. It doesn't have to be the whole of everything, but it does need to be included as something of first importance. 
What's interesting is, is I decided to do a little study on the things that are called first in the scriptures. And so when you have a computer, this is pretty easy. I just looked up the word first. I did this quick study and I just read every passage where first appeared to see if I could find any place where it was a first of all anything. And I found four occurrences, this one here and three others. And what I found is very interesting. Let me just tell you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 4, Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul says, listen, you need to know that when it comes to me and what I delivered to you, the most important thing I delivered to you was that Jesus died for your sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again. And the scriptures bear this out. The second occurrence is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, where Peter says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own private interpretation, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that I delivered this to you as of first importance, but Peter says, know this as of first importance, that your Bible is not the work of men, but is the Word of God that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The second thing Peter mentions in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, is, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Now what's interesting is there is just a crystal clear relationship between all of these things. I mean, think about it. He is saying this. He is saying, first of all, you need to know that of everything I gave you, the gospel is most important. And Peter is saying, and you need to know that God's word is God's word and not the writing of men. And you need to know that when you share God's word with those who don't know God, you can expect them to mock you and mock God's word and follow after their own lusts instead. And then in our text, Timothy says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made. You see... Because the gospel is the most important thing, because it is the word of God, and even though there is great opposition, this is the reason why we need to pray so diligently for the souls of lost men. Now, Paul uses four basic terms here. He says, I urge you or exhort or call for and encourage you that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be given or be made. The word entreaties is to request something of someone. It was a word that was used by those who you know, wanted Jesus to heal them, where, where they came and said, please heal my daughter or son or whatever, or me. That kind of request. It is kind of a desperate pleading, an entreaty made. The second word is prayers, and it is always used of addressing God, of people addressing God. It describes drawing close to God for the purpose of prayer, knowing that you can. Do you remember what the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 4.16? He says, therefore, we can with confidence or um, 
boldly draw near to God, that we can draw near and approach the throne of grace, the very threshold of God's sovereignty, with boldness, because we know Him, and find help and grace in a time of need. This is what the Word's talking about, prayers. You know that you are finite, that God is infinite, and that God is everywhere, and He wants you to pray. And so, because you know that Christ died for your sins, and because you know that in God's sight you are washed whiter than snow, then you can boldly approach the throne of grace to ask God for help in a time of need. The third word is petitions, and it's a word that is often used of an inferior requesting something from a superior. An inferior requesting something from a superior. Asking God for help. Asking God to give you something which you know You don't deserve because you're an inferior, but you petition him anyways because he is a benevolent king. So all three of those things are what we are to do. And then the final one is thanksgiving. This comes, this is the word uh, Eucharistia, which is the word we get uh, Eucharist from. If you have a Catholic background, you've probably heard that term. It means thanksgiving. It is to offer thanks and praise to God. It is to offer Him thanks for things He has already given you. It is to offer Him thanks for things that His Word says He will give you. It is to offer Him thanks for things that you hope He is going to give you. Um, It's just a constant thankfulness knowing that God causes all things to work together for good, that God wants us to be thankful in everything, not about everything, but in everything. There's a difference. Some people think, oh, well, be thankful that you're sinning. No. You need to be thankful in everything, but not about everything. But specifically here, it's talking about the lost. Be thankful when God brings these men whom he desires to be saved to repentance. Be thankful about that. And I think Christians are, for the most part, pretty lopsided in their prayer. I think a lot of times that we are thankful for a lot of worldly things, for a lot of physical things, for a lot of temporal things, but we aren't as thankful for spiritual things, for the salvation of lost souls. Oh, we often thank God for Christ and that He saved us, but we often aren't really involved in the prayer, the diligent prayer for the lost. And so when people do come to salvation, it's like, oh, so-and-so got saved. And we don't rejoice like the angels do in heaven. We just say, oh, that's so good. Praise God. Be happy. I mean, it's like somebody let all the air out of our tire. And you need to ask yourself, are you diligently praying for the souls of lost men and women and children? Are you praying for that? Are you praying for those people in your family, those people in your workplace, your neighbor, whatever? For lost people. That's what this is all about. The famous preacher F.B. Meyer was staying with A.B. Simpson, who was the founder of the Missionary Alliance Church. And he awoke really early in the morning to sobs and weeping. And he followed the noise and found A.B. Simpson on his knees, clutching a globe, weeping for the lost of the world. I remember talking to a Korean friend of mine about prayer, and he was telling me how Americans are basically sissy in their prayers. You know, and what? Hey, man, I'm an American. It's like, well, what do you mean? He says, when I was growing up, he says, my mom, every Friday after she made us dinner, would leave the house and go to a special prayer house. They have prayer places all over Korea that you can just go just built just for prayer. And she would pray all night. Every Friday night. And never miss 
ever. I said, really? And then the rest of the week, she'd just get up at five and pray two hours. Just prayer. That's convicting, isn't it? I mean, I could just see right now, putting a little advertisement in our bulletin, saying, all night prayer meeting, come all ye saints of Calvary Bible Church. I wonder who'd be here. It's painful, isn't it? But why do you think that the Korean church in the last 30 years has seen explosive growth? Webster defines prayer as to request in a humble manner to get or bring by praying to God with adoration, confession, supplication, or thanksgiving to address or petition or to ask God for something. That is a good definition. That's a biblical definition. And before we move any further, I want to just stop and I want to address what is prayer. Because I think a lot of us are confused about this. I know that it's becoming more and more popular to redefine what prayer is. But prayer is what we just said, asking God for something, or praising Him, or confessing to Him. My favorite definition of prayer comes from a book by Bingham Hunter called The God Who Hears. Really excellent book. I just warn you, if you read it, it will radically adjust your concept of prayer. So just be ready if you want to read it. But it is my favorite book on prayer. And Bingham Hunter defines prayer as in these words. He says, prayer is the means by which God gives us what he wants. That's good, isn't it? Prayer is the means by which God gives us what he wants. I like that definition because it's not man-centered. It's not like prayer is how we get God to do what we want. Because a lot of times we use God as the vending machine. We stick some prayer at him and out comes the candy bar. At least we hope it does. But that's not how it works. In 1 John 5.14, John says, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. You see, you have to ask according to his will for him to hear. God never answers prayers contrary to his will. It's not that prayer moves the hand of God. The hand of God is moving. And prayer puts you into the place where his hand is moving. And so if you pray according to his will, he hears you. In recent years, the definition of prayer has been slowly being altered. And I have been diligently trained to keep its orthodox definition intact. One of the primary books that exposes this shift is the book Experiencing God by Blackaby and King. In that book, prayer is not only when we ask God for something or confess something to God or thank God that we communicate with God, but also when God communicates to us. It has become more and more popular to hear someone say, you know, I was praying and God spoke to me. I was praying and God gave me a word. I was praying and the Lord said I needed to whatever. This people is basically the germ of a certain brand of charismatic theology which says that God is still giving revelation, inspired utterances to men today. That is... The Bible is expanding and always will be expanding. Now, this is uh, an issue that I really want to address. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, Jack, come on now. You know, aren't you hair splitting? Absolutely. And let me tell you why. There are two types of revelation. When you study the doctrine of the Bible, 
you will dis- dis- discover there are two types of ways that God communicates to us. And here they are. One way is called general revelation. General revelation is when God communicates to us subjectively, and I'll define that in a second, through creation and what has been made. In other words, like Rome, or yeah, well, Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens are declaring the glory of the Lord. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. That is, when you look at the heavens, you see, whoa, God is big, God is giant, God is complex. Look at his creative power sometimes. Other people look up there and go, whoa, man, the Big Bang is big. Evolution is incredible. I mean, Carl Sagan, millions and billions of years, man, look what happened. That's what I mean by subjective. Although you can look at creation and see certain things are true about God, if you're a believer, if you have a worldview that has God as its center, you can also come to creation and look at it and see something totally different. Especially if you're an unbeliever. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So you can go to creation and you can learn things about God. Subjective things. General things. That's what we mean by general revelation. General revelation gives us general truths about God from creation. But... General revelation must always be checked by special revelation. You're saying, well, what's special revelation? Well, here's some examples of special revelation. Special revelation is objective truth. You know, let's just say you're on a hike, you know, up in the foothills of Burbank on a clear day like today, and all of a sudden you saw a bush that was burning but was not consumed. And you came up to the bush... You heard a voice, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. You know, my name's I am. Ah, now that is some special revelation. And if there was somebody with you, they would hear the same thing. And if there was ten people with you, they would hear the same thing. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the I am. Or whatever. Any theophany, appearance of God... Any Christophany, like the angel of the Lord, when Christ appeared as the angel of the Lord or whatever. Any inspired vision or dream or the word of God, as men move from the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. These are all objective means of truth, special revelation. If we were to all line up here and all read the first part of chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, you would look down and see, first of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made. And every single person who come up here who could read and read the same thing. Now, we might interpret it different, but the truth would all be there and we would all read the same thing. It's objective. Now, when someone is praying... And God speaks to him. What category is it? Well, it's not looking through creation what has been made and learning something about God in general. So, what's left? Special revelation. Divine, inspired, objective truth. Like the kind we have here. And this is the problem. Because usually the people who say those things don't really know the different kinds of revelation, nor the consequences of those different kinds of revelations. And they aren't saying, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, um, now we're going to have the book of Bob after the book of Revelation, and uh, we're going to write, you know, Bob heard from God. We aren't going to do that. I mean, they would think, no, 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 that's not what I mean. Well, what do you mean? Well, what they usually mean is, I was praying and something came to mind. I had an idea. I had a thought. Um, you know... 
I thought to myself when I was praying, yeah, I need to go see so-and-so. I need to serve in this ministry. I need to do something. And they're giving the credit to God. That's what they're usually mean. But they aren't mean, according to the technical definition of the word, that God spoke to them in a verbal, audible way and communicated to them objective truth. That's what revelation is. That's what speaking is. Unless you use it in a figurative term which is like the heavens are declaring the glory of the Lord or the trees of the field, you know, cry out or something. And you say, well, so what's the big deal? I mean, you know, so you say God spoke to me or whatever. What was the big deal here? The big deal is this, that if God speaks to us in prayer, then we need to add to the Bible And the Bible, which gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness, doesn't if we need to get additional revelation. Now, there's no problem with saying that God reminds you of things in prayer or brings to remembrance things in prayer. Let's just say that six months ago you were driving down the road, you turn on the Christian radio station and you heard somebody preaching and you were convicted and then you forgot about it. And then someday you were praying about something similar and all of a sudden something you heard on the radio from somebody who was preaching the word came to your mind. That's fine. That's not new revelation. That's recalling to mind revelation that you heard from someone else. You see, you can hear God's word from a preacher or from a teacher or from reading a good book or from the radio or from songs or whatever. You hear the divine revelation, it goes in your head. But that's a lot different, recalling that information to mind and receiving communication from God. Because once you do that, you get into deep water. Because if God is still speaking to us, then we should probably be adding on to the scripture. Because all of God's word is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And if you're receiving God's word, then we want to put it in here. The problem is, is the scriptures say in Deuteronomy 12.32, Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. Proverbs 30, 5 and 6 says, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. The last book of the New Testament, almost the last verses in the last book of the New Testament, read this. Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Not a good idea to be adding to the Bible. Not a good idea. All this to say is that prayer is one way communication between you and God. The speaking or thinking that's going on is between you directed at God. If you want to hear from God, then you hear from God's word and sources which contain God's word. And I think there is something that needs to be asked, even though it may be painful, and that is, Is your life characterized by praying for the lost? Is that a first priority in your life? When I was thinking about this, I remembered Oswald Sanders' book, Spiritual Leadership, where he quotes this individual, Dean C.J. Vaughn. I don't know who he is, but Vaughn said this, quote, If I wish to humble anyone, I should question him about his prayers. I know of nothing to compare with this topic for its sorrowful self-confessions, end quote. Isn't that true? I mean, people just, all you got to do is, so how's your prayer? (laughs) So you've been praying a lot? Mm -hmm. You know, so often, we, we can say to ourselves, yeah, we need to pray, we need to pray, but that's about as much prayer as we do. Just confessing that we need to. 
And man, this is a major area of spiritual battle here. Anybody who prays knows how distracting it is. Now, it's easier if you're in a group praying because there's a little peer pressure. There's a little accountability. People are watching, you know, and it's easier to be a little more spiritual when people are looking at you. But when you do what Jesus said, you, when you pray, you go into your closet and you pray to your father who is in secret and your father who hears in secret will reward you. That is the test of a true Christian. How much do you pray when no one is around? Is that convicting? <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> I have never met an honest Christian yet who thought they prayed enough. I've known an individual who prays about four hours a day, and he told me that he feels like he just doesn't pray enough. And it seems like the people who pray the most feel they pray the least. And the people who pray hardly at all, a lot of times, aren't even convicted about it. Then we move on to three kinds of people you can pray for. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself, what should a person pray for? Well, look at this text says. Here's three kinds of people. Pray on behalf of all men. That's pretty good, isn't it? If you need anybody, just start with everybody in this room. Go through the phone book. I don't know. On behalf of all men, for kings, for all who are in authority. Here we have three classes of people we are to pray for for salvation. All men in general. But then he... He takes two other classes, special classes, within the group of all, and he says kings. He doesn't say the king. It doesn't have the definite article. He's not saying pray for Nero, the king, or whatever. He's saying king in general. Anybody who is of the essence of a king. In other words, anyone who is like a king, like President Clinton or President Bush or whoever's president now. You know, that's what he's saying. He's saying that we need to look at the people who are on the top rung of government places and we need to pray for their salvation. And if they are saved, we need to thank God. Not only that, he says we need to pray for people who are in authority. Literally, people in eminence or power, people who are high up the ladder, literally, in the Greek. He says, we need to pray for those too. And so we need to ask ourselves, are you praying for your leaders of the country? Are you praying for the president and for your government officials? You need to be as a first priority. And it says, and the church needs to be doing this. Needs to be praying for those who are over the country. Now he gives us, moving on, four reasons to pray. Or the outcome that we hope for when we do pray. Notice what he says. So that... And this little phrase here tells us that the reason or purpose for praying is being given so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This word tranquil here is a good word. And some of the seminary students will know this. This is one of the few hapax legomenon words. Isn't that good? You just save that and just lay it on somebody. Yeah, that's a hapax legomenon. What that word means, it's one of the few words that only appears in the New Testament one time. One time. And so it's kind of hard to know what this word really means because it only appears once. And most words derive their meaning from the context, if you took the How to Study the Bible class. And so, since you only have one context, it's kind of hard to say what it means. It's very possible the word describes tranquility from outward circumstances. That is, not being burdened from persecution. And this would tie in exactly of why you should pray for kings and all who are in authority. Why? Because if the people high up in government are favorable towards Christianity, or at least tolerate it, then you're usually free from persecution for the most part. The other word is quiet. It might also be translated tranquil. But this is an inward quietness. The other one seems to be emphasizing an outward quietness because of circumstances, because the government officials are in favor, or at least tolerate Christianity. And then this one here is a quietness from within because the outward circumstances are not oppressive. 
Then he says, not only to pray, do you have a tranquil, quiet life, but he says, a life of all godliness and dignity. Not just godliness, but all godliness. Look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'll show you what this word means. This word is almost always associated with knowing Christ, understanding sound doctrine, and obeying it. Look at verse 3 of 1 Timothy 6. But if anyone, or if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to, here it is, you CBA, here it says, godliness. That's the word right there. He is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, and evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness, there it is again, is a means of gain. But godliness, there it is, is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. If you turn over to verse 11... He says, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And he says, fight the good fight. Godliness is always used in this context of having sound doctrine, knowing Christ, and applying it to be godly. Titus says in Titus 1.1, Paul or t- Paul says to Titus in Titus 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. The knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. And so you see this word godly always appearing with knowledge, truth, doctrine. Godliness is always the result of submitting to sound doctrine. The word dignity also has an interesting meaning. Some have translated it like the King James Honesty or the NIV Holiness. And it describes a personal character of godliness. It's, it's excellent personal character from inward convictions that show on the outside. It's godliness from the inside that's showing on the outside. And this verse is amazing to me, because when you look at history, you find something interesting. I was thinking about this, and I think, why does God ask us to pray for our governing officials and all men so we can have a tranquil and quiet life and all godliness and dignity? It seems like he's saying, you know, pray for government people so you can take it easy. So you can relax, so you can have your motor home and, you know... All your stuff so you can pay low taxes and get high wages and buy as much stuff as you can in the world and just indulge yourself and just have a great time. But that's not what the text is saying. The text is talking about the salvation of the lost. You see, if you live in a place where there's persecution, where people are being killed like they are today in many parts of the world for their faith, it is hard to share the gospel. If you know that if somebody finds out you're a Christian, they're going to throw gas on you and light you on fire, it's a deterrent. I mean, in your heart, you know you need to share, but that's a deterrent, and God knows this. And so the reason he's saying... Make all of these prayers on behalf of all men and kings who are all in authority. Because it's those people who are in authority who make the rules. And you want the rules to allow you to live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity for the purpose of witnessing to people. So they can see your life. So they can see that you are a different breed than the average person on earth. That you have this excellence about you, this quality, this all-godliness, all-dignity quality. And when they look at you, they're just compelled to say, Man, I don't know what you have, but man, your, your family is so together. Your life is so together. How come? And that gives you a chance to witness to them 
That is why he's saying this. He's not saying pray for a tranquil and quiet life so you can indulge your flesh and have the American dream and just really be happy. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying pray for the governing officials so that you can get out there and be an example in the world without persecution. Now what's interesting is, is persecution has an interesting effect on the church. It purifies the church. Persecution is kind of God's, you know, Brillo pad or whatever. His bleach, his scouring cleanser. And just buffs the church up white and clean. You know, when, when it was uh, illegal and people were being persecuted in Russia for sharing their faith, the underground church was squeaky clean. Sound in doctrine and very devoted, very devout. But as soon as the Iron Curtain is lifted, what happens? The Mormons come in. Was there an underground Mormon church? No. Was there an underground uh, you know, Jehovah Witness church? No. Was there an underground Christian science church? No. An underground Catholic church? No. There was only an underground Christian church of believers who were solidly committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and to sharing their faith with people. And that is why when God allows persecution on the church, it's not necessarily a bad thing because it kind of is a scrubbing thing. It's kind of like blowing all the chaff away from the grain. It chews up all the people who aren't really committed. I mean, just think about, would you like to come to church next week if you thought somebody was going to light your house on fire and, you know, kill you or your relatives or your children? Throw you to beasts? That would be different, wouldn't it? It would be interesting to see who showed up. And our country was started by men and women who loved God. For the most part, they were the majority. They were Puritans who left England, left the, the old world to come to the new world. Men of God with very strong passions and convictions about God. And if you ever want to read about how it really is, not how Hollywood says it is, you get the book Worldly Saints by Leland Riken. Worldly Saints by Leland Riken. He tells you how the saints, the holy people, lived in the world at that time. Very convicting. It's convicting because you see, by contrast, how far our Christianity has plummeted from where it first began. The reason God wants us to pray for the salvation of men, for kings and all who are in authority, is so that we can lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity for the purpose of evangelism. So, we pray for our leaders. We pray for those in power. We pray for our neighbors. We do it diligently. We do it as we come together as something of first importance so that people who are drowning at sea and who have shipwrecked can be saved from the tempest. Now, this text could hardly be more practical. We are to offer up entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. We are to pray for the salvation of men, for our president, for government officials, for the very purpose that this country will not get to the place where we are openly persecuted and witnessing will become very hard. But in the meantime, we take our freedoms, we take our liberties, and we use them to live lives of all godliness and dignity in front of the unsaved world so that we might be a witness for Jesus Christ, so that they might see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven, that our light would so shine before men that they would be compelled to ask us, why are you different? How come your kids aren't crawling up a wall? 
How come you don't smoke, drink, cuss, and chew and go with girls who do? Or whatever. They see the contrast there. At Christmas time, we often think of the birth of Christ. And, and as I've been listening to different songs, and I've been thinking about um, their words this year, because that's really the best part of Christmas, is the words of the songs that are biblical. I like to listen to the words. And as I was listening to Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I was really surprised at the final verse that I have sung over and over and over again, but never really looked at the words. And I would encourage you to take those songs that you hear frequently and listen to the words. The final words read, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark now, hear the angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And he was born to save men, and that's why we need to pray. Let's pray. Father, we come before you asking you to forgive us for our complacency, to forgive us for the abuse of the liberties and blessings which we have all received from you. Father, you have given us so much. You have allowed us to live in a country where we can live in all godliness and dignity, but oftentimes we don't. We come before you confessing that we often indulge ourselves in the world rather than being a light in it. And Father, as a church, I pray that we would be a church who would pay for the lost with prayers and petitions and entreaties and thanksgiving, that we would come before you with a broken spirit and a contrite heart, and we would diligently pray for those who need salvation. We pray for our president, and we pray for our government officials. We pray, Father, that they would continue to grant us the freedoms that we need in order to be effective witnesses. But, Father, if we continue to abuse your grace... Give us whatever we need so that we learn the lesson not to. And Father, we pray all these things because we know it's your will. Amen.